0: So if you'd like to close your eyes, I'm going to, as I say, lead us through the meditation. Uh, some people like being led through meditation; some people find it really irritating. But let's hope you're of the first kind. So, as soon as you've closed your eyes, bringing your attention into your body. first of all just getting an overall sense of how your body feels generally often in our day to day life we don't really notice our body see if you can turn your attention into your body and feel your body just now So first of all we need to establish ourselves in this first and most fundamental sphere of mindfulness mindfulness of the body So bringing your attention into your feet See if you can feel your feet Toes and then see if you can feel your ankles and your shins and your calf muscle. Noticing the knees. If you're sitting on the floor, noticing the pressure on your knees. Can you feel the backs of your knees? See if you can feel the large muscles of the thighs. And tune into the weight of your body on the cushions or the chair. noticing your belly, and see if you can tell if you're holding your belly in. We often do that automatically without noticing it. Just see if you can feel if you're doing that now. seeing your back we're often not very aware of our back our day to day life draws us into the front of the body so see if you can feel your lower back and your middle back Then bring your attention into your shoulders. And see if you can feel if you're holding your shoulders at all. So often we're drawing our shoulders in towards each other and up towards our ears. Again, we do that automatically without noticing it. See if you can let your shoulders drop down your back. help your shoulders release by noticing the weight of your arms and the warmth of your hands. see if you can soften your face, you're not using your face just now, so you don't need to screw up your eyes, or tighten your mouth, or furrow your brow, your face wants to be completely soft. See if you can really feel (coughs) living in the body, being in the body, so it's not a thought, it's not an idea, it's not something cognitive, you just feel what the body feels like just now. you're meditating with your body, in your body. And then start to notice how your body feels. Does it feel generally pleasant or comfortable or generally unpleasant or uncomfortable or is it somewhere in between? see if you can explore your body and find some more uncomfortable sensations might be your shoulders or your neck and some more comfortable sensations like your hands just notice the different feels in the body such things as the sounds above us will have a particular feel, they'll feel unpleasant or a bit neutral or perhaps even positive. Notice the effect of the siren. So there's your body and everything that happens to you has a feeling tone, it feels either pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between. Staying in touch with your body, see if you can notice if you're having any particular thoughts, any particular narratives. Are you preoccupied with something? Are you going through something in your mind? And then on the basis of how you feel in your body, what's going on in your mind, what do you need to do now to move into a more positive state of mind? So do you need to relax more? Do you need to waken up more? Just try and notice what you need to do now in order to move to a more positive state of mind. and then just tune into your breath feel the breath in the body coming back into the body and resting in the body. the meditation ok so uh, you need to see make sure you can see this so what I want to do is um, do you want to, can you see you? make sure you can see me as well I'm more interesting <laughs> um, I always like to be able to see everybody, (coughs) otherwise I don't know what you're thinking. (laughs) Yeah, a bit more light would be good, wouldn't it? Is more light possible? Okay, so... um, one of the values of, uh, well, one of the great values of writing any kind of book, particularly a book about, well, a, a book about Buddhism, is that it makes you think about Buddhism. Uh, for me, writing has been one of the main ways in which I've reflected, um, particularly more in the last few years. One of the things that has really struck me, writing about particularly what I'm calling the Four Spheres of Mindfulness, which I'll say something about in a minute is that my own feeling is that they're all about your mind. They're really about working with your mind. And that the, the whole set of teachings is a, a way of supporting working with your mind. So, everything that you're doing, really, in mindfulness, is working with your mind. Um, and that everything is about supporting that. Yeah, everything's about supporting that. I'll try and say more, and we'll, uh, at the end of this, I'll leave a bit of time so there, be some questions. W- questions yes, yeah, so even a darker one. Have you got a, uh, a thicker one? Isn't it? It's becoming an eye test already, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> I'm This is the thing with <laughs> with these pens. It, every, Everybody centered throughout the world has flip charts and pens that don't quite work. Sometimes they sneak them away in the night. It's unicycle, that's the yeah, it's part of the unity of that. exactly. Okay, let's try that one. That's better. So, actually, so you can see it, yeah. There's nothing we should see yet. <laughs> so, um, um, when you think of it, that the, the mind, our mind is the most important thing to pay attention to. Every experience we've ever had is mediated by our mind. Every experience we ever will have is mediated by our mind. Every possible experience is mediated through your mind. So the state of your mind uh, is the state of your life, pretty much speaking. Everything you've ever experienced and can ever experience is mediated through your mind. So the whole of Buddhism starts with your mind. It starts with working with your mind because that's the most important thing to pay attention to. Um, it's amazing in the West that we've missed that point or seem to have. Um, a while ago I was, on a, um, I was on a panel with the philosopher A.C. Grayling. Uh, he's a very, very nice man, I must say. Uh, and... Uh, we were talking about the mind, and I was saying, well, you know, in Buddhism, for instance, one of the things that you do is you f- reflect that all things are impermanent. And he just said, well, that's just a truism. In other words, that's not a very important thought because it's just a truism, it doesn't do anything. And what struck me is that he didn't have a conception, or didn't seem to have a conception, that the mind has depth. So the, at the, the state of our ordinary mind, yes, all thing, the fact that all things are impermanent is a truism. It's just something you can say. But in a very deep state of mind, in a deep meditative mind of meditation, that thought can have a very profound effect on you. But he didn't seem to under, have a sense that mind has depth. So that's something else to bear in mind about our mind, is that our mind has depth. Interestingly, the body also has depth. And I might say something about that as well. Uh, but everything you experience is experienced through your mind. Um, a while ago, I was reading about Schopenhauer. I got, I got very keen on Schopenhauer's philosophy, partly stimulated by Ratnaguna many years ago, who introduced me to a book called uh, Confessions of a Philosopher, and I got very excited, particularly by the, Scho- the, the philosophy of Schopenhauer. One of the things that Schopenhauer says, uh, which I found really striking, is that the, the, he, he's concerned to, to find the truth, the nature of reality, and he says, of all reality the only part of it you know from the inside is you. Everything else in reality, if you think about the universe, how big the un- infinite universe, the only part of the universe that you have any knowledge of from the inside, how it feels inside, is your mind. Yeah? So he thought that must be the place to look because it's the only part of reality that you know from the inside. So your mind, whether it's from a philosophical point of view or a psychological <coughs> point of view, uh, creates everything. Uh, your life is led by your mind. I remember when I first went on a retreat uh, I was rather unhappy as a young man and uh, prone to feeling that people didn't like me and I remember we had this retreat your reunion and I got to the reunion and uh, we sat down to meditate and this guy looked across at me and I thought yes he doesn't like me. I knew he didn't like me he didn't like me on the retreat, he doesn't like me now. Um, and I saw a look of dislike and then after that meditation, he came over and said, Hi, nice to see you. Now, if i had left straight after the meditation without meeting him, I would have said that my perception was correct. that It wasn't a thought I had or a view I held, but it was a direct perception of someone not liking me. And I would have believed that, yeah? Um, so that state of mind was creating a world, yeah? Recently I've been reading the poetry of an American poet called Marianne Moore. I don't know whether anyone's read Marianne Moore. She's really quite wonderful and under, undervalued in, in, in the UK anyway. And she wrote a, a poem called The Mind is an Enchanting Thing. The Mind is an Enchanting Thing. And then her first line of the poem that runs straight on from the title, so it says, The Mind is an Enchanting Thing is an enchanted thing. Uh, so that's a really, really cl- uh, clear way of putting the predicament we're in. So the mind is an enchanting thing in the sense in which it casts a spell on your experience. Yeah? So we're casting a spell on things that happen to us and we take that on the world around us and we take that spell to be the objective contents of experience, yeah? So we cast a spell on our experience. So if you feel unhappy and a bit paranoid, as I did when I was 24, you'll see people not liking you. You cast a spell on experience. But also your mind is enchanted. Your mind is under a spell. That's what she's getting at. The mind is an enchanting thing, is an enchanted thing. So that your mind is also under a spell. That you don't know whether your thoughts are your own or the media's or just the sort of thing that your mother said to you before you were seven. So we're both under a spell and casting a spell. So the whole issue of the mind is very, very difficult to work on because we mistake the spell that we throw out onto the world for reality itself and we at the same time don't realise how much we are enchanted, how much we're under a spell, So, for instance, one of the things I keep hearing again and again, this is my hard-hitting point, didn't realise I had one, (laughs) was uh, people keep on telling me that they need to think for themselves. I've come to think that it's the most overrated uh, idea in modern life, is that you need to think for yourself. A hundred years or so ago, people wouldn't have talked about that. They'd say you need to be obedient to God, or you need to do your duty. Um, Spells come in fashions, yeah? Yeah. Most people, even the idea that you should think for yourself is actually somebody else's idea. It's an idea you pick up from other people. Uh, It's uh, the sort of thing you're supposed to think now. So the mind is both casting a spell and under a spell. But despite that, we can change it. At the end of Marianne Moore's poem, she says, it's not a Herod's oath that cannot change. It's not a Herod's oath that cannot change. So even though your mind is under a spell, and casting a spell, you can change it. Yeah? Um, Buddhist practice is all about changing your mind, um, to the nth degree, really, about changing your mind. So that's what the whole of mindfulness is concerned with, really, I believe. Not everybody will agree, but that's what I think. Yeah? So I want to think then of that what we need is a fit mind. In social service speak, you talk about something being fit for purpose. So we need a mind that's fit for purpose. Now the first purpose we want it to be fit for is happiness. And I'll say bits and bobs about that as we go on. But there's a greater purpose as well. So we need a fit mind. If we're going to live well, if we're going to be happy, we need a fit mind. Because we're casting a spell on on our experience. Yeah. So one of the things I mentioned in my book is the whole problem of expectation. So, say for instance your partner comes back from holiday and they bring you a smaller than usual present. Uh, what you can find is that you, when they give it to you, you're disappointed. And it's a very odd experience to be disappointed when someone gives you a gift. But it's because you've actually got an expectation that they'd give you something bigger. But you haven't noticed that expectation until the moment that you're given the gift. It's a very perplexing experience, because you think you should feel grateful, but you feel disappointed. And that's because in the past they give you, gave you bigger gifts. And you didn't notice that that had set up an expectation until it was, as, a fa- as it were, betrayed. And if you're not careful, you then think, oh, they've given me a smaller use than gift. What's going on? What, who did they meet on their holiday? Um, Uh, And if you're not careful, you can set around a whole narrative about that smaller gift. And then you start to react to your partner as if that that narrative you created is the objective content of the experience. They met somebody else, The love is cooling, here we go again. And you start getting miserable with with them and monosyllabic. Uh, You start to act as if that is the objective content of your experience. And you forget that they've very low on money at the moment. Do you see what I mean? So that in, in, that's a very simple example of how our mind creates our world. So if you're not careful, by the end of that first evening, you're in a thoroughly bad mood, your partner's really upset with you because they brought you a gift. Not only did you seem not very happy, but you then got into a bad mood afterwards, and they cannot understand you. You see what I mean? So in that way, in that way, we create a world. So to have a fit mind, to be happy, we need a fit mind. So the first thing we need um, to have a fit mind is to have an embodied mind. So very often our mind um, is disembodied. I, I wonder whether this is partly because the body is often, or even almost always, slightly uncomfortable, and sometimes much more than that and that the discomfort in the body chases us, as it were, out of the body. Whatever the reason, we seem to spend an awful lot of time in abstractions, fantasies, cerebral thought. We're somewhere else. We're very often not aware of our body. I slightly fear that technology may, may be making this worse. Anyone who's spent time on a computer just knows how far away you can get from your body. Um... A few, a wee while of clicking on your computer, before you know it, you're dehydrated, you're physically stiff. You can even, you know, suddenly re- realize that you really want to go to the loo and have done for some time, but you keep overriding it by going to one, to one website or another. So, very often we live away from the body in this kind of cerebral or um, technological world. Yeah? And uh, you can't have a fit mind without an embodied mind. Uh, So the first thing we need to develop is an embodied mind, a mind that's living sensually in the body, not a mind that's caught up in rumination, in distraction, in fantasy, and so on. Then we need to go a bit further, and we need to cultivate a sensitised mind, So sensitised mind is a mind uh, really attuned to the texture of life. Uh, so this is one of the things I was leading us through in the meditation that life has a certain texture. Everything we experience has a texture. So what sounded like a herd of cattle above us—it's uh, not just sound, is it? Immediately it's got a texture, and that texture sticks to the experience. And possibly, if it was, for you, it might have been an unpleasant texture. Yeah? Uh, so usually we don't notice that we just immediately set off into a narrative about it we immediately go from an unpleasant sensation into a whole story about what on earth is going on upstairs and why is that person jumping up and down on the floor <laughs> or whatever it is yeah? um, usually what happens is we don't notice the sensitised mind um, and this is very odd in a way because human beings are so very deeply sensitised, even if they think they're not. Recently, I've had more to do with children. I've got two little nieces, and it's very striking how sensitised they are. So I took one of them to the loo, and I, t- I went to dry her hands, and that, those these new hair dryers, the hand dryers that sound like a jet going off, and uh, she got really frightened immediately, and her whole body kind of. <laughs> Reacted to that unpleasant sound, um, and she said, "What's that? What's that?" And I was, I, you know, I said, "No, it's, not, it's nothing. It's just a hand dryer." But it was very striking how physicalized that experience was, and how we get better and better at hiding the physicalization of experience. And perhaps that's something to do with the fact why we're not embodied very much. We get better and better at sort of standing away from experience and thinking about it cognitively. So we need to start to cultivate a sensitized mind. You know? So one of the things that was cut from that book, i used to, I, in the original book I wrote long stories about all these things that I was interested in that happened to me. And uh, my editor took a red pen <laughs> to each, each one of them. Um, and that was an unpleasant Vedna, an unpleasant sensation, uh, just to keep you uh, aware of that. But one of the things that once I noticed, I was coming, I was on the train, and there was a fight on the train. Uh, between um, a woman who was getting on and a woman who was getting off. Um, It was a very, very packed train. And what happened is somebody had been getting off the train with their child, holding their child and pushing the buggy. Somebody had been getting on the train. Apparently what happened is the woman getting on the train had bumped into the woman getting off, and the woman getting off had hit her. Now, by the time I got there... The woman who was trying to get on was keeping the door open so the, couldn't, the train couldn't move, had called uh, the guards, had called the police. The other woman was being really, really, they were being really aggressive to each other. She wouldn't let the train go. All the other passengers who were thoroughly fed up were looking out of the window and uh, finding out what's going on. The, the guards were coming. It was a sort of thoroughly unpleasant scene. Um, and I sort of tried to imagine into it. So what you've got, all you've got that's happening is lots of lots of flashes of unpleasant sensation. Your sensitised mind flashing again and again. So it was a hot August day, and the, the trains, as they often are in London, were completely pack, packed. Yeah? So when you're getting off a train that's completely packed, you have that horrible sensation that you might not get to the door before, <clears throat> before the train draws off, don't you? So you get more unpleasant sensation more unpleasant vedner, as it's called. Because yeah? um, you think, I've got to my stop, I must get off. And you, f- you can feel all these people in your way, and it really worries you. Yeah? So you get more unpleasant sensation. You then try to push your way to the door. The woman coming on, and you've got a child as well, so that worries you still, still more. It's very difficult to manage a buggy and a child at the same time. The woman getting on is immediately having unpleasant sensation because the door's opening and there's a train full of, a crowded train of people. Oh no, I'm not going to be able to get on. That gives her unpleasant Vedana. And what we do with unpleasant Vedana is we immediately want to stop it. We want to do almost anything to stop it. So the woman getting off starts to push so that once she's out, the unpleasant Vedana will go away. The woman getting on starts to push on even though she's supposed to wait for people to get off first, because she's anxious that she's not going to get on. So she gets more unpleasant vedana, yeah? But she's trying to stop that. And, uh, of course, they collide, probably completely innocently. That creates more unpleasant Vedna. And if you're holding a child, you're particularly sensitised, so you hit the other person, that creates more unpleasant Vedana. And all you are getting is one flash after another, setting off another another another. You've just got this mounting... <coughs> story of pain, really. And people, everybody, experiencing discomfort and trying to make it stop. And their actions are trying to make it stop, making it worse and worse and worse. And then other people on the train as it was stopped were getting really irritated that it stopped in the carriage for so long. They were hot, they'd have a long day at work. Everyone's unpleasant Vedana was stucking up. Yeah? So what we inevitably try to do with unpleasant Vedana is stop it. Just as what we try and do with pleasant Vedana is to repeat it. So I don't know whether you've ever had that cheese sandwich moment. Uh, I've had it once in my life where you eat a cheese sandwich and it seems the ultimate cheese sandwich. It seems, what, it seems like the archetype of cheese sandwiches where it just feels just right. Have you ever had this with food where you think that's wonderful and immediately you want another. And as soon as you want another, your mind thinking about having another means that you're no longer enjoying it so much because your mind's on something else. And then in, if you're at a dinner party and that happens, you start to rush because uh, you want to have seconds and you're worried that your other guests will get there first. So the more you try and repeat Pleasant Vedana, the less Pleasant Vedana you get. Yeah? Uh, I've written quite a lot about this in my mind, but, in, in my book, but you get a whole... Um, you get onto what's called the hedonic tre- treadmill. The more you try and get pleasure, the less pleasure you get. Yeah? So what we do is instead of noticing our sensitized mind, we react to unpleasant sensations by wanting to push them away and often making them worse, and we react to pleasant sensations by wanting to repeat them and therefore vitiating them. So what we need to do to have a fit mind is to stay with the sensitized mind and try to bear that without pushing away negative experience, habitually and automatically, and so often making it worse, or trying to grab pleasant experience and so vitiating it. Okay. So those are the are two things that we need. But we also need something else. Um, we also need, uh, well, I couldn't quite decide what to call this, but we also need the imaginative mind, I think, or the, or the appreciative mind. I, felt, I feel more and more that human beings are really imagination. Human beings are embodied imagination. That's really uh, what we are. It's why people can sell things to us, because they get us to imagine something. Human beings are really imagination. So if we're going to talk about mindfulness, we really need to talk about imagination. Uh, It seems to me so very important. So the areas I've Emphasized particularly in my book, which is from Bhante uh system of mindfulness, is a m- mindfulness of art, nature and objects. Appreciation of art, appreciation of nature, appreciation of objects. And uh, I've even put in the book a, a poem by Elizabeth Bishop, who again is a wonderful American uh, poet, a friend of Marianne Morse, uh, and tried to show how uh, reading a poem can help your mindfulness. Yeah? Um, so we need, if we're going to have this fit mind, we need a mind that can really enjoy things, but can really enjoy things that are not so much caught up with grasping and craving. You know? One of the great things of reading a poem or a, or a novel or listening to a piece of music, it seems to me that you can leave this world and go into another world. And the other world you go into is like this world but it's transformed by the imaginative weight of the artist. So uh, the arts are another way, I think, of cultivating mindfulness. For instance, what poetry does, it gets you to slow down. Uh, It's like those signs that you see in country roads that light up when you're driving too fast and they say, slow down. You, you, You can't speed read a poem. You have to Read it slowly. So, for instance, one of the things I suggest in my, data to, in my mindfulness week on that particular theme is to read one or two poems uh, every day and to read it three times. So I'm suggesting that you don't take the free papers with you on the train, you don't play uh, games on your mobile, but you take a slim volume of poetry and read the same poem three times. And it'll have a good effect on your mindfulness, yeah? It's also to do with having an appreciative mind. One of the things I've most noticed from practising Buddhism all this time is that my capacity to appreciate things, people and art and nature, has increased enormously. Particularly I've noticed my um, appreciation of nature increase. When I first came along to the Buddhist Centre, um, I didn't know what all, this, what all the fuss about nature was in a way, uh, I knew you were supposed to enjoy it and I sort of had ideologies to enjoy it but I didn't really, I preferred cinema and it sort of went quicker and took you around more but as I practised, one of the things I noticed more and more is how much more I genuinely appreciate the world around me I'm just much more aware of it and much more naturally appreciative of it than I ever used to be and that's a sign of practising mindfulness I think, is that you notice things more. You could say that Mindfulness is simply about developing observation, particularly observing your mind, but also observing the world around you and relishing it. (coughs) To have a fit mind, you also need an altruistic mind. Now, this is often left out of discussions on mindfulness, and I think at great danger. Um, So I'm saying that all of these are elements of a, a fit mind. All of these are things that we need to develop. And all of these are things that, and in the book, we learn how to develop week by week. One of the great dangers of any practice, Buddhist practice, any, any practice that encourages um, introspection, is that it unwittingly can encourage self-absorption. This is true of psychotherapy, and it's true of Buddhism. If you're not careful, if you practice in the wrong way, It can encourage introspection, even rumination. Uh, uh, It can, sorry, not introspection, it can encourage self absorption. Now, self absorption is one of the primary symptoms of depression. Uh, We're doing a lot of work with depression at the LBC. And one of the primary symptoms of depression is self absorption. If you're not careful, anything that encourages introspection can unwittingly tip over into self absorption. I used to quite easily get depressed when I was younger. And the thing I remember most is that awful sense of uh, self-absorption, the the sense that myself was inside this huge bag of cotton wool buds or something, and I was sort of absorbed within myself. Um, So you need to develop mindfulness of others. To to, to practice mindfulness in the right spirit, in a Buddhist spirit, you need to develop mindfulness of others. Especially you need to cultivate altruism. So I devoted a chapter in in the book to mindfulness of others. Um, And this is part of Bhante's uh, Sangratra system of mindfulness, that you need to cultivate mindfulness of others. It's even possible that the original suttas meant you to be aware of self or other. They talk about mindfulness internally and mindfulness externally. So it may have meant that they meant awareness of others. Whether they mean it or not, you need to cultivate that. Without that, you can't have a fit mind. Um, so much of your mind is really to do with other people. When we talk about life, mainly we're talking about other people. When we're talking about our emotions, mostly we're talking about other people. Uh, So much of our mental life, our emotional life, is really to do with other people. So we need all these things to have a fit mind. And we need to consciously work with our mind. How I've talked about this in the book is particularly working on the narratives in our mind the kind of things we say to ourselves. Uh, So I'm thinking of mindfulness of chitta, as it's called, mindfulness of your states of mind, as to do with being mindful of the kind of stories you tell yourself. What self is, is a kind of story. And uh, to have a fit mind, we need to really notice the kind of stories we have. So for instance, do you have a pessimistic style, is one way of putting it. So if you have a pessimistic style, what will tend to happen is you'll see negative things that happen to you as being enduring and, as it were, typical. Yes, that always happens. That's the sort of thing that happens to me. And you'll see positive things that happen to you as being un- unusual and occasional and not typical. So you say, I was lucky in love in that particular time. Uh, you don't say, I'm good with girls or boys or whatever you see to I me. Mean. If you opti- have an optimistic style, you'll tend to think the good things that happen to you are typical and enduring, and the negative things that happen to you are occasional and not enduring. So if you have a pessimistic style, for instance, you really need to challenge that. Um, the one value of pessimism, apparently, is you have, a better, you have a more accurate sense of yourself than optimists do. But it's, generally speaking, not as useful, not as... Psychologically useful and not spiritually useful. So you need to challenge what style of thinking you have, particularly if you have a pessimistic style of thinking. Now to, to do that, you need what I've called a Dharma mind. A Dharma mind. So a Dharma mind. A Dharma mind. So we need an embodied mind, a sensitized mind, an imaginative or appreciative mind, an outward-going or altruistic mind, meaning a dharma mind. So the dharma mind, as I'm translating in my book, means bring to mind those teachings you need in the moment that you actually need them. Yeah. Um, I think that's what the relationship of what's usually called chitta, mind, states of mind, is to dharmas. It's saying, first of all, notice the kind of state of mind you're in, and then bring to mind the teaching that you need in that actual moment. Uh, so often the Dharma, Buddhism, just floats about as a kind of interesting theory. Some of the things that we like to think, some of the things we associate with. The real uh, test of life is to bring the Dharma into direct contact with your lived experience as a kind of electricity. Um, I had a, a little experience of this a while ago, well, not so little experience of this a while ago, where I'd had a difficult day and I had a difficult communication with someone who I was finding difficult. And uh, I was going to a concert that evening of Mahler's Second Symphony, I think. And uh, I was walking along to the concert and I was going through the argument in my mind, thinking, hmm, they said that, and huh, that, and I was giving answers that I would have said, and so on. Interestingly, when we do that, when we go through an argument in our mind, our body does all the same things as if the argument is actually happening. So your body goes into fight and flight. Everything that happens in your body happens as if the argument is actually happening. It's as if your body can't tell the difference between you going over an argument in your mind and actually having it. So, so much of our life is spent going over arguments in our mind. And I noticed it, and noticing it is mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of chitta. I noticed that I was going through that argument in my mind. But of course I want to. In that moment... I believe somehow that that's the best thing to do. That's in my mind, at least. I can, I can say the ultimate put down. <laughs> of course, I'm not that horrible, but um, you know, I can say the thing that will finally clinch it. Somehow, I want to go through it again and again. And I remember in this occasion, I just sort of stopped myself in the street and gave myself, a, literally, and gave myself a good talking to. Sometimes you do have to give yourself a good talking to. And I said to myself, "This is it. This is the moment." You're writing about this in your book. This is it. This is not a moment to talk about in your book. This is not a thing to talk about in talk. This is where you need to apply the Dharma. You are now in this state of mind. What teaching do you need to bring to mind? For instance, that hatred is never overcome by hatred. Or the teaching I brought to mind is, do you really want to spoil your evening going through this again and again in your mind? You booked this concert ages ago. Do you really mean to do this? And I kind of stopped myself, and I got out of it. I really brought the dial to bear on the experience. I felt the pain of being in a negative state of mind, and I got out of it. Uh, it was a bit like that um, moment in Spider-Man, the most recent one, where he's covered in this black suit, isn't he? And he pulls it off. Our negative states of mind are like that. They're like this kind of black rubber suit that gets attracted to us. And uh, we start to live inside it. And in Spider-Man, he pulls it off. And it was just like that. And I had this incredibly happy evening. Uh, Lots of things went wrong, I won't go into it. But I had this really incredibly happy evening. It was like um, an evening in heaven. I'd somehow really had a bit of an insight into the negativity of that state of mind. And then I had this glorious happy evening. And that's to do with bringing Dharma, bringing the teachings to bear in the moment that you actually need it. Not as some kind of interesting idea, but in the actual moment that you need it. So there's a kind of electricity that happens, and only by that electricity can insight occur. It can't occur just by thinking it over sort of notionally oh, yes, hatred is never overcome by hatred. You need to think about it in the moment of hatred. Yeah? So, to, you, you need to bring to mind the teachings so that you can have a fit mind and so that you can be happy, but you also need to do it in a greater sense. You need to bring to mind the Dharma in terms of reality. that all things arise, independence and conditions, or that hatred is never overcome by hatred. So you try to become mindful of reality, and you try to make that your Dharma mind, if you see what I mean. Eventually the whole mind is trying to rise up and become the same as reality. Uh, And in the book there's a whole week on mindfulness of reality. So what the eight-week course does is it talks about mindfulness of body, of an embodied mind, of a sensitized mind, an imaginative, appreciative mind, an altruistic mind, uh, chitta itself, bringing to mind the teachings, bringing to mind reality. But one other thing it covers, and that needs to really be right down here, and I've called it day-to-day mindfulness. So day-to-day mindfulness is things like remembering your keys. And I'll come back day-to-day mindfulness after the break. So that's the first week of the course, is exploring day-to-day mindfulness. You can't really do very much with this unless you've done something with that. If you're constantly rushing around because you've forgotten something or because some, uh, something else has gone wrong, you'll be in no fit state to cultivate an embodied mind, a sensitized mind, an imaginative mind, an altruistic mind, and so on. Yeah? So before we can even start with the Buddha's four spheres of mindfulness, or Bant's five dimensions of mindfulness. We need to start with really, really simple things—really simple day-to-day mindfulness, which is really difficult to practice. Yeah? So that briefly goes through the course. Is there any questions about that before we have some tea, or is it all perfectly lucid? Yes. That models when there are models in Buddhism like four foundations of mindfulness this is uh, the fourth <laughs> one <foundation of laughs> yeah so um, what I've done is recast those uh, teachings in a slightly different way so actually what you've got here and what the book does is explore the four what we used to call foundations of mindfulness and Bante's five dimensions or at least the dimensions that are missing from the four dimensions the four spheres of mindfulness um, Yes. What I thought you were going to ask is, why are you emphasising mind so much? So often many people are saying to me, no, body awareness is the main thing. My own experience is that body awareness is to do with stepping back from your mind. The main thing you get from practising body awareness is more perspective on your mind. Usually what we are, we're caught up in mind, aren't we? We're like stuck to the front windscreen of our mind. And what we need to do is get some perspective on it. One of the prime ways you can do that is by cultivating mindfulness of the body. Anyway, but that wasn't what you were asking. But yes, these are, would you believe? I've slightly recast them. I've used different words, but they are actually those very things. I mean, it's an interesting one. That was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was intrigued what you said about um, optimism and pessimism. Yeah. You said if you tend to have a pessimistic... Um, Style, as it's called, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by accuracy? Well, partly this... this is, it's all subjective. This is... Yes, that's true. I never thought of that. <laughs> um, partly it was just... I was reading the various books and one of them was talking about, for instance, that people who are a bit depressed often have a better sense of their own strengths and shortcomings than people who aren't. Uh, people who are pessimistic often have a, a better and more accurate assessment of their own strengths and weaknesses than optimists. Uh, so I just wanted to say something... Uh, for it (laughs) there's not much to say for it but there is that to say for it that you have a better generally speaking according to research you have a better a more realistic sense of what your strengths and weaknesses are optimists tend to overvalue overvalue their strengths basically and under don't see their weaknesses enough nevertheless um, we need to learn to become more optimistic if you have a pessimistic style I have a pessimistic style myself I won't go into it in any depth, but um, it does seem to be just a style people have. Yeah. yeah. I'm I just intrigued by the idea of an objective standard yeah. of value. Objective, probably, in inverted commas. <laughs> but certainly some people seem to... Uh, yeah, I think, for instance, myself, I've got a pessimistic style. Uh, I think I have quite a good sense of my own strengths and my own shortcomings. And I'm fairly quick to be able to admit them. Both, Well, not strengths so much, but certainly shortcomings. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I can see my own shortcomings fairly easily. Some people just don't seem to be able to so much. They seem to be more enamoured by their strengths and not quite able to see their shortcomings. There is a certain objectivity to one's judgments. There is, that's right, yeah. You might think, oh, I could go and be managing director of a company, no problem. Yeah. And actually, we just don't have the skills to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that's right. Human beings can be more or less objective, can't they? You re- so you do meet people who think they're the bee's knees, and they're surrounded by people who don't think they are. It's, it's slightly slightly tragic in a certain sort of way. There's a real mis misperception. So are you saying that both optimists and pessimists need to kind be a bit more aware, or are you saying that it's just a pessimist? Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Partly what I got, what, what this is provoked by, um, partly it's provoked by my own pessimistic style. Um, partly, B- Buddhism is supposed to be not either optimistic or pessimistic. Um, it's nihilistic. it means you can change. Um, and very often we oscillate, don't we, from optimism to pessimism. Uh, Bhante Sangrechita says, nevertheless, if you practice Buddhism, you tend to become a bit more optimistic. Uh, I think that there is, we do need to be more, much more careful of narratives, particularly in our mind, and particularly challenge pessimistic narratives. Op- the optimists need to learn to be better at seeing their own shortcomings and so, un- judging them. they need to challenge their kind of internal stories as well? They do, know, but it's less urgent, are- I think. Yeah. or something like that. But that optimists, while they may be less accurate, have a more useful perception. That's right, that's because right, Because yeah. their expectation of getting a job gives them a hope that gives them all the motivation and drives to actually do something. In some respects, the pessimist that thinks they won't get it, doesn't try it. That's right, yeah. Yeah. that reality goes on forever and um, you, you get to try again means that actually often they do eventually succeed even if they don't in a single case. Well, you see, what they'll do is they'll judge the the failure as being uh, occasional and not typical. Yeah. So they'll just think, oh yeah, that, that, that didn't work that time. A pessimistic style would say, I never get the job. An optimist would say, I didn't get this job. You see what I mean? It's literally as simple as that. So, Optimism is pragmatically better, basically. It's not to do with an understanding of the nature of reality, but it's pragmatically better. And you probably, we've we all got a particular style, and you need to just sort of work with that style. Yeah, so it's pragmatically better, I think. Hmm. Any other questions before we... Practical question. are uh, you talking about sensitizing mind, you suggest to stay yeah. Instinctive mind because when you sandwich, you're thinking about another one. Mm. The moment you think is, yes, you know, so you say, stay on sensitive mind. How do you stay on sensitive mind? Well, it's an interesting question because you can't do that unless you've done a lot of this, mm. and unless you've done some of that. It's actually very difficult to stay with your sensitized <coughs> mind, um, because we instinctively want to stop unpleasant vedana or unpleasant sensations or instinctively want to repeat them, we usually just go straight from experience to action. Like these women on the train, just they they don't think, oh, this is unpleasant, gosh, that's even more pleasant, tell you what, I'll hit someone. It just kind of shoots off very quickly. So Buddhism really emphasises what's called Vedana here, because that's the place of freedom, where you can have negative, painful Vedanas, but not react to them automatically and instinctively that you can actually stay with them and make wise choices about how to act. So if you've been on that train you think, yes, I'm really hot, I'm really uncomfortable, let's just sort of breathe. (laughs) It's not going to make any difference if I get into a bad mood, it's just going to make things worse, and so on. So staying with Vedana, very, very difficult though it is, is a key to freedom. It means that you can enjoy things more because you're not... You're not completely caught into repeating pleasures, which vitiate them, and you can not make discomfort even worse by reacting to it. So there's been lots of studies about happiness at the moment. It's a bit of a fad. But for instance, it says, because your mind is adaptive, because your mind adapts so quickly to experience, so for instance, they they did studies to show that moving to a foreign country has no effect on your happiness level. If you move abroad, it has no effect at all on your happiness level. Your Looks has no effect on your happiness level. So if you're very beautiful, it doesn't have any effect on your happiness level. Um, your income, once you can afford a cup of coffee and a, and a book in town, you know, you have that moment, I have that moment sometimes, where I go and buy a cup of coffee and a book, and I read it in a bookshop. Once you can afford that, after then, money makes almost no difference to your happiness level at all. The richest people in America, the 200 richest people in America, who are fabulously rich, are only marginally happier than the average American. And so on and so forth. Um, Interestingly, your health has very little effect on your happiness level. It has a marginal effect on your happiness level, but your attitude towards it has a massive effect on your happiness level. And so on. So there's more interest now in this thing called positive psychology about how do people become happy. An American psychologist Martin Seligman, he was saying... Most of his life he studied how you went from minus six to minus three. And he started to want to know how you went from plus three to plus six. And there's been lots of interesting research around all those sort of things. One of them is challenging your pessimistic style. Yeah. Okay, so let's have a pleasant uh, tea break, experiencing pleasant Vedana. And then we'll come back and I'll guide us into beginning to think about day-to-day Mindfulness.